and welcome to this Owl Explains Hootenanny. I am Silvia Sanchez, Project Manager of Owl Explains, and I am super excited to share this special episode with you. This episode comes from one of the panels we recently hosted at the Avalanche Summit in Barcelona, our first in-person event as Owl Explains, in which we gathered many wise owls from all over the world seeking to build a better internet. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. A very timely topic for our crypto industry. My name is Olta Andoni. I'm General Counsel of Enclave Markets. I'm very happy to be here today, especially this panel of all females. Uh, without any further ado, let's have them introduce, your, uh, introduce yourselves. Okay. Yes, I think we're on. Uh, Caroline Malcolm, I run the public policy team at Chainalysis. Many of you probably know Chainalysis is a data analytics uh, firm working with the public and private sector to really understand what's happening on public blockchains and help people, whether it be in terms of investigations, compliance, supervision of compliance, and other exploration of other uses of, of the data that is available on chain. Hi. I, I'm. Okay, I'm Monica Saw. I'm a partner at uh, Clifford Chance, which is an international law firm. And um, I specialize in financial regulation um, and I'm based in London. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Great to be here, especially in Barcelona. Um, I'm Seema Kinder Johnson. I'm co founder and COO of Nuggets. Uh, we are a decentralized identity and multi rail payment platform. And I also sit on the technical advisory committee of ID2020. So great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. My name is Isabella Chase. I'm a senior policy advisor at TRM Labs. TRM Labs is a blockchain intelligence company, and we help crypto businesses, financial institutions, and the public sector track and trace illicit finance and fraud across 28 different blockchains. Uh, thank you. So the topic for our panel is uh, AML compliance, the ticking uh, time bomb for our industry. We have seen a lot of fallouts in our industry recently. So Monica, where do we go from here? And if you can summarize for our audience what happened uh, quickly, that would be super helpful. Okay, I'm going to start with um, FTX, which I think is probably one of the key sort of uh, events this this year, um, and and effectively as it was been over the all over the papers, etc. Obviously, and a big sort of trauma for the industry. But when you look at what happened, you see that um, there's two sort of core failings. One is um, the lack of understanding of of a con conflicts of interest. There was a lot of intra-entity affiliate transactions where you had a client of FTX, which was a, an affiliate who was given margin loans from client assets by the uh, by the exchange, and the collateral was FTT, which was again uh, the exchange coin uh, with an inflated price um, because of open market transactions. So there was a number of interaffiliate transactions, and nobody really understood them. And as a result, there was an ability for allegedly, I use the word allegedly, the siphoning of client assets to um, the owners of, of the fund. So there was effectively a fraud, um, and uh, or alleged fraud, I should say. And um, the other aspect is whether, you know, could there have been uh, ways in which to prevent this from happening, i.e., for example, um, uh, better client asset protection? Um, in my view, I think there was a couple of failings. One, I think there was a regulatory failure 
because the regulator, ultimately FTX, was a regulated entity in Bahamas. It had a digital markets license, but the regulator didn't understand the affiliate transactions, didn't monitor, you know, monitor and supervise. And the question is whether or not um, you could have had uh, better client asset protection rules. Yes, but if there's a fraud, there's a fraud. And you see that in the traditional space as well. Uh, thank you. Uh, Caroline, we have seen a lot of more attention, of course, from the regulators regarding AML compliance. There have been uh, some major recent developments, both in UK and United States. Uh, can you uh, uh, summarize them quickly for our audience? Yeah, so also this is really a, a continuation of what we saw beginning. I mean, this conversation about AML in this space really begins back in sort of 2014, 2015, gets formalized in the standard in 2019. Um, 2021, we have some more uh, clarification of the guidance on that, particularly around DeFi, which is probably, you know, specifically relevant to, to this audience. But now countries are getting a lot more serious about the actual implementation of those rules. And, and I guess the thing which an industry often gets the most attention is, is this travel rule. And of course, we've seen that coming into force in, in the UK. Um, we're seeing this issue of AML compliance uh, more generally uh, get a lot of attention. In, and in the US, as you mentioned, we've just had Treasury release their um, uh, industry assessment of illicit activity in the DeFi space, so looking specifically, you know, at this issue of how much listed activity is there in the DeFi space, and how much compliance with obligations are there, including setting out their view of what those obligations actually are. And I think probably for many people, what would be very surprising coming out of that Treasury paper is the assertion that the Bank Secrecy Act, the BSA, in fact, already applies to DeFi. And I think. That's certainly when you look back at the international standard that FATF has written, certainly goes further than that standard in the sense that the standard made clear that DeFi is not included except in certain cases where you have sufficient control. Now we have Treasury saying, and there is a consultation that's, that's open for that, sort of say that the BSA already applies. And so you can see that why I think uh, industry sort of thought that, you know, you could focus on AML compliance when it came to centralised businesses. You can see that that regulatory perimeter is starting to shift and probably should be getting a lot more attention in industry than it currently Thank you. Uh, Sima, I think this is a perfect uh, segue into our next question. So ransomware attacks have been also at center of the attention. Uh, what are some reputational risks that we should be aware of? Look, I think that's a really great question. We've probably seen like a huge ransomware attack, right, just very recently. Um, it's with a phenomenal team that did all the right things. They had huge amounts of smart contract reviews by all of the leading organizations and they're a hugely you know respected team but i think when you do have a ransomware attack i mean the impact's huge and far-reaching you know when you think about from a financial perspective we'll talk about that before reputational but financial is the ransom itself the cost of recovery the fact that you know your business as you knew it no longer almost exists you almost have to reset up an organization that's all about recovery and remedying that huge um, ransom issue. And then you've got, you know, without even knowing, and to touch on something there around that some of these things around the travel rule BSA actually have already started to apply to any transaction over $1,000, you know, that you have to share 
beneficiary data, originator data, which means that you also, if there's a ransomware, you may unwittingly expose sensitive PII data. Um, and then you've got to look at that regulatory fine that has nothing to do almost with the financial regulator, but with organisations, you know, around data uh, regulation. So that's just the financial piece, which is, you know, a huge impact. But also, we probably all know that whether you're in um, DeFi or TradFi, you know, trust is a massive issue. You know, so whenever any of us transact, we access services online, we pay, we're open to fraud, privacy and security issues. So trust is hugely important. And when you lose that, I would say it's really hard to recover, not just with customers, but with your employees, whether they're your existing employees, external employees and the businesses that actually help you support your products and services. So that's really tough because of that brand association as well. So, yeah. Um, God, it's really depressing. <laughs> it is really depressing, unfortunately. Uh, another depressing topic, uh, I would say. Uh, but when we talk about the differences of uh, AML compliance between TradFi and DeFi, there is so much to discuss. I'm going to try my best to cover the main topics for this panel. Uh, but Isabella, would you walk us through the main differences between uh, TradFi and DeFi compliance? Sure. I mean, use the word depressing. I think it's a huge opportunity, you know. Yes, um, but I, I genuinely do. Um, so, and just to start off, I'm really excited to answer this question because just yesterday at TRM, we published a big white paper looking at what does effective compliance, oh, sorry, what does effective compliance look like in the crypto space with lots of examples for DeFi? Um, but just look at some of the top line issue, uh, areas where we see that difference between TradFi and DeFi. Well, in the TradFi world, AML compliance really revolves around the concept of knowing your customer. And why do traditional institutions need to know their customer? Well, because all they can see when it comes to establishing risk is who their customer is and the transactions that their customer performs within the walls of their institutions. They can't see anything else. So if you're trying to establish financial crime risk, you actually have very few data points to work with. You can control who you give services to, and then you can control the limits on those services to try and minimize risk. But with DeFi, we flip that completely on its head. We might not know who our customer is. There are permissioned projects where you would have normal KYC, but on on average, you're permissionless. You don't know who your customers are, but you have total visibility over every transaction that's taking place. And this is huge because if you can layer on top of that risk information, illicit finance typologies, you get this huge amount of contextual data to put the transactions that you're responsible for in, which is really, like it just changes. It's a paradigm shift in how we can think about effectiveness. One thing I would say, though, and as Caroline touched on, are the regulations there for us to know who has the responsibility to be controlling that risk? To what extent should it be controlled? No. And the space is evolving and compliance in the space is also evolving. But I don't think it's depressing. I think it's a big opportunity. Thankfully. Uh, but I mean, going back to uh, to the compliance aspect, especially for DeFi protocols and front ends, uh, Caroline, how do you think or uh, what should uh, DeFi protocols do to, to meet those uh, uh, expectations from the regulators? Look, I think we're, we're still pretty early on in terms of 
the different um, what I might call sort of regulated DeFi models that are available here with um, Avalanche, you have one particular um, model of sort of permissioned DeFi using subnets, which gives people, you know, a, a particular avenue of options. You've got uh, solutions like Aave's Arc, which is a different uh, solution to, to that issue. You've got some interesting experiments going on, for example, with um, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, looking at you know uh, sort of more whitelisted type models similar to similar to Aves Arc, but I do think there's still a lot more work to be done. And as Isabella mentioned, there's not that there's not necessarily that regulators are coming with solutions to say this is what regulated DeFi should look like they are waiting for industry. They're saying you need to get here. We're telling you the goal. You need to build for that goal. And it's become increasingly clear and increasingly explicit that just saying, well, but I'm decentralised isn't an answer to, to, to the issue. They're much less interested in this idea of a spectrum of decentralisation um, because then they are interested in the activities that you're carrying out. And if you're carrying out those certain activities, you are going to be expected to meet that threshold. And that, that onus is on you. So that onus is, is firmly on industry to now come up with, with some of the solutions. And I think industry is part of the way there. But I think there's also just a more general awakening that is going on to sort of say, like, that is in in the world of of regulation. That is that is very much the future. There there is not a future in which regulators are not interested in DeFi, or which they turn around and say, "Oh, well, you're so decentralized. Don't worry about it." Like that future doesn't exist in a regulator's mind. So I think kind of recognizing the sort of that writing on the world and and, and on the wall and and building for that future is is something where a lot more attention is going to be focused uh, in the coming sort of really months. Um, uh, thank you. And uh, uh, as as this panel is part of our our uh, com uh, campaign, which is super super important uh, for our industry, so we're very proud of uh, our I'll explain. Uh, Monica, one of the branches of our I'll explain is think global. Do you think that this uh, sort of global uh, uh, compliance or working globally with the regulators is even doable when it comes to AML compliance? So so I think. This is the heart of the question, actually, and, and and Caroline has sort of mentioned a couple of things, and and Seema and 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 Isabel, and I, I think the point is 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 when even when you're looking at traditional finance, there's not a global framework. Global frameworks don't exist. You have to go. Uh, you have to go. Um, um, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, it's a patchwork. Even in the in EU, where you think you have an EU standard, those much of that uh, uh, those EU standards are implemented um, locally by jurisdiction. So you need to look at a patchwork. Now the question is is whether AML um, can have a global framework, and you know you've got the FATF guidance, and Caroline mentioned. The travel rule, and you've got the new. Obviously, before the travel rule was through the uh, amended guidelines, we had the extension of the AML requirements to virtual asset service providers, um, both the registration and the client due diligence requirements. Now, 
Those were global standards. Everybody agrees with them. Everybody agrees that you can't just sort of say DeFi is because it's DeFi, it's out of scope or, you know, as a matter of course. Um, the question is, is you even though there's global standards, you have to look at how things are implemented or are they implemented locally? And so you've got a lot of friction in creating, you're not going to have a global AML platform for any product. So, uh, and that you don't have that in the trad space, let alone the DeFi space. So you need to look at the friction points. So in some friction points are, for example, what is a virtual asset uh, implemented, you know, at the FATF level, it was implemented differently. So what is caught within the perimeter is different in Europe under me, uh, with, with, under the, uh, money laundering regimes, um, which is a narrow virtual currency definition, while under the UK implementation of uh, AML uh, money laundering directive, it's a much broader crypto asset. So what are we talking about is different in different jurisdictions. The speed at which um, the um, laws are implemented are different. So you've got um, different levels of compliance and or requirements in different jurisdictions even if you had the same definition. So there's a lot of friction in creating a global platform. Thank you. Sima, any, do, would you like to add anything about the global uh, compliance and if yeah. it's even achievable? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I think I would. So I think there's this whole thing around DeFi. You know, the promise of DeFi is, is that it's decentralized. It's, you know, you've got the autonomy. It's totally private. And then when you think about compliance, Obviously, you're thinking about centralized checks like KYC, AML. You're thinking about um, traceability and all of those sorts of things. And that lends itself to being centralized. And we did some work, actually, with the UK regulator, the UK Financial Conduct Authority. And there is this notion of a global uh, sandbox as well called GFIN, where a number of um, regulators essentially globally came together to look at, well, what does... does uh, retention when you think about AML data does that mean for five years seven years that you have to print that data off stick it in a brown folder under your desk for five seven years or stick it on a centralized server somewhere and actually what we found was retention could mean it's decentralized and it could be encrypted to a relying parties or a DeFi project or protocols private key so I'm really really excited about advances in technology and the way the regulators or some of them are thinking about how they can satisfy the needs of DeFi, but ensure that there's a level of compliance around KYC and AML. So I just wanted to um, add that. Thank you. And a perfect segue into our next question, maybe just going a little bit outside the AML compliance. From uh, a regulatory perspective, Isabella, what are some other areas that DeFi protocols should be aware of in our industry? Sure. Um, and I, as you say, I think it's really important to look beyond the AML horizons where the conversation has been for a long time. Um, but there are other risk areas that need to be borne in mind. And uh, you know, much to Monica's point, I think a lot of those have been driven by recent real world events. I think uh, FDX highlighted issues across the crypto ecosystem around governance and the need to have maybe not global rules, but standards around governance, maybe adopted from some to some extent from traditional finance. Uh, SVB really highlighted issues to do with contagion and entanglement risk. And I think a lot of people are now thinking about, okay, so what is that, the bridge, if something happens in CFI, 
what's the impact on DeFi and vice versa? And is that something that I need to be really worried about from a market integrity perspective? Um, and then finally, you know, we haven't, we haven't talked really much about market manipulation, but Mango Markets last year was a really big story that made a lot of people think, how are we protecting these projects from manipulation? Are they even breaking the law? Is everything just a highly profitable trading strategy? Um, and so these wider questions around, okay, well, AML not sorted, but that conversation is getting going, but market integrity, financial stability, investor protecting, consumer protection, the list goes on. Um, but all of those regulatory conversations are really kicking off. We will see a lot of work this year uh, by IOSCO in their DeFi working group on some of these issues. The FSB will start thinking about them as well. We see work at the G20 and also IMF level. So plenty more to do. The list goes on. That's why we need your attorneys. Uh, my, uh, I think we only have 10 minutes left and I think the, my favorite part of panels is your crystal ball, predictions for our industry, do we see more enforcement actions? Where do you go from here? I'm going to start with Caroline. Yeah, so I guess enforcement actions is something that always really comes up, particularly in the, in the US, because the way I sort of think about the sort of policy cycle is you start with policy making and then you go into regulation, then you do supervision and then you have some enforcement. Because of the challenges that the US has, not restricted to, to crypto, but certainly affecting crypto on the, on the policy and regulation piece um, due to blockages in Congress, a lot of activity actually happens over here in enforcement and much less over, over in these sort of first, first two or three parts. Um, so I think certainly when we talk about the US, yes, we will continue to see a significant amounts of enforcement action including likely to continue to delve into this question of DeFi and, you know, who is liable? Because I think there's really sort of two questions in the, in the DeFi space. One is around, well, what are potential models for regulated DeFi? And then the, then the other question is, well, when something goes wrong, who do you touch? Who, who do you make responsible? And I think an exploration of, of, of that question is going to continue. And, you know, you have front ends, you have... Uh, voters, you have, you know, um, admins. There's, there's different so who people. do you sacrifice <laughs> right there? So I, I, and I think, well, I think if the industry, like that's an opportunity, if the industry has a view, otherwise you're going to leave regulators to come up with their own with their own view there. Um, and then I think beyond the US, um, we're going to see a lot more on the implementation. So you've got a lot more happen in those first two spheres, policy and regulation, now really moving into implementation. So regulation through to supervision. And so you're gonna sort of see that the rubber hit the road. And, and I guess Europe is a good example of that with MICA over the next 12 months, slowly starting to come into force, first on stable coins, and then on the, the broader MICA regime. So I think, you know, enforcement actions get so many headlines, but in terms of actually having a, a stable framework in which um, industry can build, people are really looking outside of the US and that's because you're starting to see those concrete regulations come into place and, and countries move into, into supervision. And Monica? So I think there's three main trends. I think the first is is obviously um, moving more into more, you know, implementing the existing frameworks that need to be implemented. So, for example, in as as Caroline said, in in the AML space and the the the, uh, 
um, uh, travel rule, etc., just getting countries to implement those rules and the marketplace to respond to, to that implementation. Um, the next piece is, as you said, the rolling out of a more comprehensive framework around um, um, uh, the regulation of the crypto sector. And uh, you're absolutely right. It's a question of, you know, focusing on the, you know, the service providers in a centralized and a CFI world. Um, but what's exciting is that you're finally seeing a comprehensive um, framework coming out, for example, under Mika, and also in the UK. Uh, I mean, I think there's going to be a real uh, um, um, burst of energy in the next year about bringing out UK rules on on uh, to create that comprehensive uh, framework. And then last, it's about where where is the other areas we need to expand to? So, for example, Mika doesn't apply to, or the UK rules don't apply to decentralized finance in the same way, or to NFTs. And we're going to have to. I think we're going to see how the regulators are going to be able to address, um, or how they and they will address and they will regulate these spaces. It's a question of how, um, and that's what's the, the third trend. Seaman. Uh, so I think from all of that, we realise that regulation is probably inevitable. Um, so I think I'm more interested in more than the how then, you know, how can we ensure that DeFi uh, grows in the massive way that we want it to grow, attract that institutional investment that it needs to really realise its true potential. And I think it can only come from having sensible levels of regulation, but that don't compromise its fundamental tenets around decentralization, autonomy and privacy. And I'm really excited about uh, solution providers as well, providing those tools that mean that, um, you know, DeFi projects and protocols, which are seen as maybe the relying party are not in hot water as the regulation landscape becomes clearer. Uh, Isabella. Yeah, I mean, I, just to sort of build on kind of what everyone has said, I think this year is really going to be about having the conversation about the what, the where and the who. So what is the activity? Where is it taking place? And, and who could be liable if something went wrong? I would disagree slightly with the fellow panelists. I don't think we'll see a like movement towards a framework this year. But what I think we will see is a year of engagement. So from the US, we have an open call for engagement on illicit finance issues. The French have put forward their proposals, um, and, but are very open to engagement, the UK as well. Um, and I think what really needs to happen now is for the industry to galvanize across uh, to those open doors and come with solutions. And those solutions have to be informed by the people building these projects, as well as policy people who you know are all here today. Um, but that will be really essential to ensure that, you know, as Seema says, we get the solutions that are also respectful of the founding tenants of DeFi. My mic was up. Uh, so, I mean, going back to regulation, and is there any way how we can uh, collaborate with our regulators? What are we missing in our industry to, to kind of, uh, uh, and not always be on the defensive side? I feel like as an industry, we're always on the defensive side. So how do we put our, our, our good word out there? Well, I think things like Owl Explains really helps. You're educating, giving the basic language that everyone can then use to communicate. You have to be proactive. You need to take ideas, solutions, questions that you're struggling with as an industry to policymakers. They might be a bit difficult to get hold of at first, but once you're in the door, 
that line of communication is always open. So I think sometimes people are scared to approach governments and policymakers, regulators, but do. And yeah, we can help. Yeah, and I think practically that was one of the really big challenges that we had at Nuggets, which was, you know, we were building things that no one had really thought through from a regulation perspective. You know, did we need a money license? Were we, you know, do we hit on these regulations from an AML5 and all of those um, regulations? And I think what we've been lucky with in the UK is actually the regulator's been really open um, and actually it hasn't been, uh, you know, it actually, want, they want to collaborate, even HMRC, strangely, on a taxation perspective. So I think what I would really welcome is these open, globally set up type sandbox environments, which means that projects and protocols can go in there with a, you know, let's work on this stuff together. But we've seen maybe the opposite of that in the US. So it'd be nice for more collaboration I would say. You have been very lucky with your regulators in UK and I love to see everything that is happening there. Hopefully it's going to inspire our regulators here, as uh, uh, not here, sorry, in the United States. Uh, Monica. So, so I think that regulatory engagement is a real, um, you know, alongside of the development of the, the regulatory framework, uh, participants in, in, in the industry need to engage with regulators, uh, undoubtedly. I think the difficulty is, and you see across the globe, that different regulators have different sort of um, um, risk appetite tolerance to the industry. And so you have the US and, you know, I don't think people are going to leave necessarily US because the market is the US and you'll never be able to, but expanding in the US becomes very difficult if you have a regulator that's very hostile. Likewise, there's regulatory arbitrage in the US, so you just think which regulators are trying to, you know, it's just very complicated. Likewise, in Singapore, the regulatory appetite has changed. It's become a lot more hostile. MES has become much more hostile than it was, you know, let's say three years ago. Um, while reverse in Hong Kong, the you know regulators like opening the doors. And the UK and Europe is very interesting because you know you want you know the creation of the sandboxes, the creation of the the um, the uh, regulatory sort of frameworks by uh, legislatures. So there's a real appetite to engage and see you know fintech i'm going to use that broad, broadly as as a real generator for the economy but the question is and again this comes down to bringing your regulator along for the ride is making sure that you're um positioning yourself as a respectable and compliant sort of and uh Mon forward monica i hope they're not gonna cut my mic off because they did it last year sorry <laughs> but i would like to thank you this was an amazing panel i hope to see more female panels thank you so much for being we hope you enjoyed our hootenanny thank you for listening for more hopeful and hype free resources visit owlexplains.com there, you will find articles, quizzes, practical explainers, suggested reading materials, and lots more. Also, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue wising up on blockchain and Web3. That's all for now on Owl Explains. Until next time.